Before we begin, I want to thank anyone who rated the Bedtime Stories podcast this month, and I especially want to thank Beefcake Blues for the kind review, and I want to remind everyone that you can support me at patreon.com slash hugepop for a dollar a month. You can hear the occasional Bedtime Stories commentary, sometimes I put other stuff on there, and I want to remind you that you can write an email to me at adamdran at gmail.com, and if you want, I can respond to questions or whatever uh, by reading it at the end of the podcast, which I'm going to do this month, so you can stay tuned after the outro music uh, to hear that. Tonight's bedtime story is called 200 to Nothing, and observant listeners might notice that the number 200 in the title has significance beyond the plot of the story. Let's begin. The Multi-Oak High School boys basketball team was having its best season of all time. There had been other teams that had started with records as good as the current teams, but none of those teams had won by an average of over 30 points per game. This team was talented, they were deep, they were tall, they were fast, they could score inside and outside, on the fast break or in the half court, and they could lock other teams down when they felt like it, but they never needed to. Now, exulting in the locker room after a 28-point drubbing of River Yard High School, one of their most hated conference rivals, the team sat in silence as Coach Verk delivered his post-game remarks. Next week is Silvercrest Christian, said Coach Verk. He flapped his bland tie with his left hand. And I know you're overlooking them. Even if you say you aren't, I know you are. He paused and pointed his clipboard, if it's possible to point a clipboard at Tanner. Are you overlooking Silvercrest, Tanner? Me, said Tanner, no. Yes, you are, said Coach Verk, and I don't blame you. I really don't. I'm not, though, said Tanner. You are, said Coach Verk, and there's nothing you can say or do to convince me otherwise. Okay, said Tanner. He hated it when Coach Verk talked directly to him. He felt like it never went well. So you're overlooking them, said Coach Verk, right? No, said Tanner. Give me a break, said Coach Verk. Silvercrest is terrible. Why wouldn't you overlook them? They haven't won a game all year. You guys know River Yard, the team we just got done beating by 28 points? They beat Silvercrest 126-14. to They beat them by over 100 points. And River Yard's starters didn't even play for the entire second half. It was all end-of-the-bench guys. So, given all that, given that you beat the team that beat Silvercrest by over 100 points, by 28 points, why wouldn't you be overlooking Silvercrest, Tanner? Because every game matters, said Tanner. Coach Verk rolled his eyes. Tanner, I had a very specific way I wanted this speech to go, and you're ruining it. This should be a happy night, but you're ruining it for everyone. I guess I'm overlooking Silvercrest, said Tanner. A little bit, at least. Of course you are, said Coach Verk. And why wouldn't you? They're terrible. Yeah, said Tanner. They suck. Tanner, please, said Coach Verk. We don't need to be crude about it. Sorry, said Tanner. The point is that you're overlooking Silvercrest and with good reason, said Coach Verk. Right, Tanner? Yes, said Tanner. Well, let me tell you something you may not know, said Coach Verk, and I want all of you to listen very closely. He used one big gaze to look at all of the Multi-Oak High School boys basketball team at the same time. My first coaching job was at Silvercrest Christian High School. He paused to allow for gasps, but there were none. Coach Verk was visibly disappointed at the lack of a stir caused by his revelation. Yes, he said, with some alterations to his inflection, I was once an assistant coach at Silvercrest. The angled for stir remained unattained. 
If you pause to think about it, continued Coach Virk, to really consider what I'm saying, I think you'll find yourself surprised that a coach as successful as myself began his career at such a notoriously unsuccessful program. Shocking, right? Right, Tanner? Yes, said Tanner. He didn't understand why Coach Virk continued to address him in particular. The whole team was here. Why couldn't he address Kevin or Lance or Alfredo? But this is what I ask you to consider, said Coach Virk. Would Silvercrest be a notoriously awful basketball program if Coach Philot hadn't fired me for trivial non-basketball reasons? No, said Tanner, trying to anticipate what Coach Virk wanted from him so that the interaction could be as brief as possible. Correct, said Coach Virk. And why is that, Tanner? Because you would have made them good, said Tanner. Correct again, said Coach Virk. I don't know why you insist on playing dumb, Tanner. You're actually pretty smart when you make an effort, right? Yes, said Tanner. Of course, if Coach Fallot hadn't fired me, I wouldn't still be at Silvercrest, said Coach Virk. I would have moved on to bigger and better things long ago. My career would have really taken off. I wouldn't be coaching here, either. I'd be coaching in Heavenburg by now, or maybe a college team. That setback cost me years, not to mention the lingering effect it's had on my reputation. But the point is that whatever Coach Fallot's stated reasons for firing me, the true reason is that he feared I was about to take his job despite being ten years younger than him, and if that had happened, which it would have, then even in the very short time I would have been there, I would have set the program on the right track, and they would be much better off today just from my positive influence during the short time that I was in charge there. Tanner nodded. He hoped that a light, continuous nod would keep him from having to answer any more rhetorical questions aloud. And that's why we can't overlook the game against Silvercrest Christian, said Coach Virk. Do you understand, Chris? Chris's vacant expression switched to shock at being addressed instead of Tanner, then switched to concern for his own well-being when he realized he hadn't heard Coach Virk's question. No, he said. Tanner, said Coach Virk, explain it to Chris. We can't overlook Silvercrest because they'd be better now if Coach Flott hadn't fired Coach Virk, said Tanner. No, screamed Coach Virk. He hurled his clipboard across the locker room and into the shower area. This is how you respond after I pay you a compliment, Tanner? Come on. The reason we can't overlook Silvercrest is because Coach Fallot ruined my career and ruined my life, and now we have a chance to publicly humiliate him. Oh, right, said Tanner. Explain that to Chris, said Coach Virk. Tanner looked at Chris, who looked back at him with sympathy. Coach Fallot ruined Coach Virk's life, so we have to humiliate Silvercrest, said Tanner. Got it, said Chris. Thanks, Tanner. You're welcome, said Tanner. And tell him how we're going to humiliate Silvercrest, said Coach Virk. You haven't told me yet, said Tanner. We're going to beat Silvercrest 200 to nothing, said Coach Virk. We are? asked Tanner. Wow. Tell Chris, said Coach Virk. I heard you say it, said Chris. 200 to nothing. Don't let Tanner off the hook, said Coach Virk. He has to learn. We're going to beat Silvercrest 200 to nothing, said Tanner. I know, said Chris. I heard. And not only are we going to beat them 200 to nothing, said Coach Virk, but I'm going to announce our intention to do so tomorrow. It will be in the newspaper, and it will be on the TV news, so you boys will have to win 200 to nothing, or will be the ones who are humiliated. Tanner cleared his throat, trying to remember everything Coach Virk had just said. He's also going to tell the paper and, uh, stop it, Tanner, said Coach Virk. Everyone heard me. Alfredo raised his hand. Why did Coach Fallot fire you if it wasn't for basketball reasons? It wasn't for basketball reasons, said Coach Virk. It was because without their parents' permission, I took two freshman players duck hunting with me to teach them to have a killer instinct on the court, and then I gave them alcohol to lower their inhibitions so they'd be less resistant to killing ducks, and then we killed way over the legal limit of ducks, 
and then I got a DUI on the way home. And that's it. That's literally it. I was fired for that. Tanner couldn't help but think that the firing sounded kind of justified, but he knew better than to say so out loud. Coach Verk looked at him. Does that firing sound justified to you, Tanner? No, said Tanner. Then stop overlooking Silvercrest, said Coach Verk. Three days later, Coach Fallot addressed the Silvercrest Christian High School boys basketball team in the locker room before practice. Julian hoped whatever Coach Fallot had to say wouldn't take too long. He liked Coach Fallot, but he never found his speeches helpful or inspiring. The only way he could imagine he and his teammates becoming less of an embarrassment on the court was by spending more time practicing basic basketball maneuvers, such as making layups. Why were they all so bad at making layups? Other teams made making layups look simple. I'm sure you've all heard by now, said Coach Fallot, but I think it's important that we address it. Just in case some of you haven't heard, well, you probably know that our next game is against Multioke on Thursday night. It is? asked Josh. Julian sighed out loud so that Coach Fallot would know that at least someone on the team found Josh's obliviousness as frustrating as Coach Fallot probably did. Yes, that's who we're playing next, said Coach Fallot. His tone betrayed none of the frustration that Julian assumed he was feeling, which frustrated Julian almost as much as Josh's obliviousness. Maybe if Coach Fallot expressed some frustration every once in a while, the team wouldn't feel comfortable delivering record-shatteringly bad performances on the court over and over again. Is Multioke good? asked Josh. Yes, said Coach Fallot. They're very good. Uh Uh-oh, said Josh. That's bad news for us. He grinned as he said it. Julian wanted to punch him in the Adam's apple. Well, that's what I want to talk about, said Coach Fallot, because over the weekend, Coach Verk, he's the head coach over at Multioke, and anyway, he announced that he intends for his team to beat us 200 to nothing. Oh yeah, said Xander, I heard about that. Is that even possible, asked Julian. Well, yes, I think it is, unfortunately, said Coach Fallot. Josh snorted. Are you kidding, Julian? Of course it's possible. Multioke beat Riveryard by almost 30 points, said Coach Fallot, and you recall how badly Riveryard beat us? And they didn't play their starters in the second half. Coach Verk will be doing everything in his power to beat us by the score he predicted. But why, asked Julian, why does he want to beat us by so much? He wants to humiliate me, said Coach Fallot. He was an assistant coach under me when he first started out, and I fired him for some very good reasons, but he's been bitter ever since, and he sees this as an opportunity to even the score. But wait, said Julian, a small flicker of competitive spirit blooming in his heart. If he declared that they're going to win 200 to nothing, then if they score any less than that, or if we score even one point, then it's almost like we won, right? No, said Coach Fallot, losing 200 to 1 will not be like a victory, nor will losing 199 to nothing. But it'll prove Coach Verk wrong, said Julian. Maybe it won't be like a real victory, but it'll be like a moral victory. No, said Coach Fallot, we're not going to approach it like that. We're not going to give them the satisfaction. So what are we going to do, asked Julian. If Coach Verk wants this game to be a farce, then a farce is what he's going to get, said Coach Fallot. What's farce, asked Caleb. We're not going to try, said Coach Fallot. Let them do whatever they want. Let them beat us 200 to nothing. Let them beat us 300 to nothing. Because how can they humiliate us if we're not even trying? Who cares? Josh cackled. I love it, he said. But sometimes people think we aren't trying when we really are. Right, said Coach Fallot. So we have to make it extra obvious that we're not trying. How do we do that? asked Julian. His stomach felt hollow, even though he'd had multiple extra helpings of cherry crisp at lunch in the cafeteria. He knew it wasn't good for his physique, but he couldn't help himself. He'd told himself he'd work extra hard at practice to work all that cherry crisp off. 
How do we make it obvious that we're not trying, asked Coach Fallot. Well, for one thing, we'll go with a different starting lineup. Does that maybe mean that I? Julian couldn't bring himself to finish the question. Uh, probably, said Coach Fallot. I'll probably start you at small forward, Julian. Why are you smiling, asked Connor, the usual starting small forward. You know he's starting you to make it obvious that we're not trying, right? I know, I know, said Julian, still smiling. He knew he should be insulted, and he was insulted in a way, but he was also, in another way, excited. Josh pointed at Julian. Coach, I think if you start him, Julian's going to try. Coach Fallot considered Julian for a moment, then turned to Josh and said, That won't hurt anything. The rest of the team snickered, but Julian didn't care. All he had to do was score one point. Just one. One. If he scored one point, he would be the winner, the sole winner of the game. One free throw, that was all it would take. Of course, he'd never made a free throw in a game before, or in practice. He tried to think if he'd ever made one outside of practice. Surely he had. But what if no one on Multioke fouled him? Maybe he should try to make a layup. That would be worth two points. He couldn't wait to hit the practice floor. Chris's mom, Darla, picked up Chris and Tanner from basketball practice on the Tuesday before the game against Silvercrest Christian. How was practice, she asked, as the two tall teenage boys, 117 and 118, climbed into her SUV. Tanner rode shotgun because it was the policy of Chris's family that guests got to ride shotgun, which meant that guests had to ride shotgun unless they could convince Chris's mom that they really didn't want to, which was impossible to do because Chris's mom always assumed the guests were lying to be polite. It was good, said Chris. Do you agree with Chris, Tanner? asked Darla. Was practice good? Not really, said Tanner. You don't agree with Chris? asked Darla. She looked at Tanner, which required her to look away from the road, which caused her to run a stop sign. He's mad at Coach Verk, said Chris. Don't speak for him, said Darla. Tanner can speak for himself. I'm mad at Coach Verk, said Tanner, wishing that Chris's mom would just let Chris speak for him. Why? asked Darla. I won't say why, said Chris. I know why, but I'll let Tanner say why. Because he publicly announced that we're going to beat Silvercrest 200 to nothing, said Tanner, so now we have to do that, which seems almost impossible, or else it's like we failed and Coach Verk will be super mad at us and make us run the bleachers for a whole practice or something. And it's all because of his own personal grudge against the Silvercrest coach, which has nothing to do with us, but he expects us to care about it as much as he does. Why 200 to nothing, asked Darla. I don't know, said Tanner. It'll set the record for most lopsided victory. It's a big round number. He says the number 200 is personally significant to him right now, whatever that means. Have you ever heard of a video game called Charm Snaker? asked Darla. I think so, said Tanner. Isn't it pretty old? Yes, said Darla. It is pretty old, which is why I'm so good at it. I've been playing it since I was a teenager, and now I'm so good just beating the game isn't a challenge anymore. So I set little goals for myself to make it more challenging. For example, I have to snake over 100 charms in less than an hour, or I have to snake all 10 legendary charms without leveling up, which, if you know the game, that's very hard to do. Maybe that's what Coach Verk is trying to do for you boys, give you a challenge beyond merely winning or losing so that you still have something to work toward. No, said Tanner, the whole thing is based on spite and nothing else. He told us. Well, that doesn't make much sense, said Darla. I remember why Coach Vert got fired from Silvercrest, and it was very justified, and I'm surprised he hasn't come to terms with that yet at his age. I was shocked when Multioke hired him, but I figured, well, it had been years and years since the incident. Surely he'd learned from his mistakes. This is all a little disturbing, frankly. It makes me wonder if I want him to coach my son. So I can quit, asked Chris. 
It was the most hope Tanner had heard in his voice since he'd known Chris. No, said Darley, you're the best player. You'd be letting the whole team down. We won't care, said Tanner. Thank you, Tanner, said Darla, but you don't speak for the whole team. I often do, said Tanner. He could tell Chris's mom didn't know what he meant, but she didn't ask him to clarify. Julian's older brother Dorian picked him up from basketball practice on the Wednesday before the game against Multioke. How was practice? Dorian asked as Julian heaved his overburdened backpack into the trunk of the car and accepted his customary post-practice fountain drink. Good, said Julian. He eased his body into the front seat of his brother's fancy car and seat-belted himself. Good, asked Dorian, zipping the car out of the Silvercrest Christian High School parking lot with a tiny horn beep. It was actually a good practice? Yes, said Julian. I made a layup and almost made two free throws. Does that mean you made one free throw and almost made a second, asked Dorian? No, said Julian. I almost made one, and then I almost made another one, but I did make a layup. Did you almost make a second layup, asked Dorian? No, said Julian. Dorian let a respectful minute pass before he asked, Was anyone guarding you on the layup? No, said Julian. The Multio guys will probably be guarding you, said Dorian. If they're going for 200 points, they're probably going to be trying to force lots of turnovers, not waiting for rebounds. I just need to take them by surprise one time, said Julian. Won't Coach Falat pull you if he sees you trying, asked Dorian. Isn't he trying to make it obvious that the team isn't trying in order to make the 200 to nothing final score a hollow victory for Coach Virk? Well, that's the thing, said Julian. Coach Falat says that if everyone sees me trying and sees what it looks like when I'm trying, then it'll be clear that the team as a whole is not trying because no team that is trying would ever let me go out on the floor and try, much less start, much less play the entire game. If I just went out there and didn't try like everyone else, then it wouldn't be clear how having me on the floor instead of Kyle, for example, shows that the team is not trying. And the fact that you made a layup in practice today doesn't concern Coach Falat, asked Dorian. He isn't worried that if you make a layup in the game, then that might make it seem like the team was trying? He didn't see me make it, said Julian. So he still thinks you're incapable, said Dorian. Yes, said Julian, but I'm not incapable. I'm capable. I've done it once. I can do it again. Julian did not feel bad about lying to his brother about making a layup in practice, because he really had almost made one. It was even closer to being a make than either of the free throws he had almost made. The nearly made layup had rattled around the rim and popped out in such a way that Julian considered it as good as a make. It was a mere fluke that the ball had not passed all the way through the hoop, no doubt attributable to some quirk of that specific rim, some flaw in that specific backboard. If Julian did the exact layup that he had done in practice in the game against Multioke on Thursday, the ball would certainly proceed through the hoop in a manner common for regular makers of layups, and he, Julian, would win. Coach Virk addressed the Multioke High School boys basketball team in the home locker room before they took the floor against Silvercrest Christian High School. With his clipboard nowhere to be seen, Coach Virk occupied both of his hands with mangling his tie as he spoke. Some of you are still overlooking this game, he said. I can sense it. I can smell it. I don't want to have to call those of you who are overlooking this game out by name, but Tanner, you're one of them. No, I'm not, said Tanner. I want to win 200 to nothing so badly. I'm dedicated to winning 200 to nothing. Then why don't I smell that dedication, asked Coach Virk. Maybe my dedication is odorless, said Tanner. He wasn't sure how literally he was supposed to take this smell of dedication talk. Impossible, said Coach Virk. You're good on the break, Tanner, and if we play how I want us to play, this game is going to offer tons of fast break chances. 
This should be your exact kind of game. This game could be a big boost to your scoring average. But if I see you exhibiting anything other than total dedication to beating Silvercrest 200 to nothing, thereby humiliating Coach Vallott and exacting my vengeance upon him, I will yank you to the bench so fast that your head will spin around like you're possessed by a demon, but you won't be possessed by a demon, so that kind of head spinning will break your neck, if not full-on decapitate you. What happens if we don't win 200 to nothing? asked Chris. That's the one question you're not allowed to ask, said Coach Verk. Well... Not the one question you aren't allowed to ask. One of the questions you're not allowed to ask. One of many. What if we go over 200 points, asked Chris. Is that question allowed? That question is allowed, said Coach Verk. When we get to 200 points, we will stop trying to score. I want the score to be exactly 200 to 0, because that's what I predicted it would be. And hitting the number exactly demonstrates my control over not only my team, but over Coach Fallot and his team as well. It demonstrates my control over reality. Yes, it does, said Tanner. I don't need your confirmation, Tanner, said Coach Verk. Who asked you to talk? I thought it was a question, said Tanner. No, you didn't, said Coach Verk. You just like the sound of your own voice. But some of the rest of us are getting a little sick of it. Tanner nodded. But he couldn't wait to ruin Coach Verk's plan, quit the team, and join his friend's intramural team. Their team name was an innuendo they'd sneaked past the administration, and they all had funny names on the back of their team shirts. Some of those names were innuendos, too. Coach Fallot addressed the Silvercrest Christian High School boys basketball team in the visitor's locker room before they took the floor against Multi-Oak High School. The look on his face was that of a boy being forced to perform an embarrassing role in a didactic school play with a moral he did not agree with. Strange things can happen, he said. I've seen many strange things happen in my years as a coach. Heck, just in life I've seen strange things happen. Like what, asked Julian. Coach Fallot shrugged. Well, like once when I was probably 10 or 11, I tied my brother's scarf in a knot and threw it in the empty garbage can around the side of our house as a prank. And I put the lid on the garbage can. And he saw me do it, and we struggled for a minute at most. And then he got past me and took the lid off of the garbage can, and there was nothing in it. No scarf, no nothing. And we never found it. The scarf was just gone. He cleared his throat. The point is, is that even if we tried our hardest tonight, Multioak might beat us 200 to nothing. But they might not. One of you might make a lucky shot, might get fouled, manage to bank in a free throw or something. It would be strange, but strange things can happen. But that can't happen, boys. We can't let anything strange happen. Because if we score even one point, Coach Verk will feel like he failed. And I'll just have to deal with something like this again next year. Or he'll think up some new, even worse way to get back at me. And maybe next time it'll actually be something he can't accomplish. And then it'll just go on and on. He'll never feel like he's gotten even, and I'll have to deal with this kind of crap forever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot try out there. But I'm still allowed to try, said Julian. Right, Coach Fallot? Because I'm so bad? That's what I'm saying, said Coach Verk. I've been giving it some thought, and I've realized that strange things can happen. Even very strange things can happen. And that means, Julian, that as bad as you are, you might make a shot. So you can demonstrate how bad you are and how you starting the game for us demonstrates our overall lack of trying in other ways, like trying to play defense, trying to dribble, trying to pass the ball, and so on. But you cannot shoot, okay? No shooting from anyone, not even Julian. We're not going to tempt fate. I'm not going to have this nonsense continue beyond tonight because one of you makes a lucky shot. If I see any of you even looking at the rim like you might be considering taking a shot, I'm going to yank you to the bench so fast that your head will bobble on your neck like you're a bobblehead. 
and the crowd will think that this is life-size bobblehead night. But they'll think that I accidentally put one of the bobbleheads into the game instead of the player the bobblehead was meant to represent, and that I've just realized my mistake, and I'm taking the bobblehead out of the game. I won't shoot, said Julian. Thank you, said Coach Verk. I'm almost certain you'd never be able to make a shot, especially with multi-oak players guarding you, but that almost haunts me. I understand, said Julian. He was going to have to pick his spot very carefully. He was going to have one chance to make a basket at most. Make or miss, Coach Fallot was going to pull Julian out of the game as soon as he took a shot, and he'd probably never put him into a game ever again. Coach Fallot might even kick Julian off of the team. The shot, if Julian happened upon a chance to take it, was likely going to be the culmination of his athletic career for his entire life, barring a dramatic physical transformation or the invention of a sport designed to favor his particular abilities, if he had any. He was almost sure he was going to blow it, but that almost thrilled him. The game, as Coach Fallot had predicted, was a farce. The crowd began the game in a raucous mood. Coach Virk's declaration had created much more interest than the matchup would have been able to generate on its own. Some fans made bets before the game about whether or not Multioke would be able to achieve the 200 to nothing final score, but by the end of the first quarter, most of the drama was gone. Multioke was already up 66 to nothing, and it was clear to everyone in the building that not only were the Silvercrest boys making no attempt to compete, they were not even attempting to slow the Multioke boys down. Two minutes into the second quarter, and the initial buzz in the crowd was dead. Even the Multioke student section, which had arrived primed for a messy public execution, seemed drained of enthusiasm. The spectacle of stone-faced Silvercrest players idly dribbling around until a Multioke player poked the ball away and raced to the basket for an uncontested layup was not entertaining to behold. And those constituted Silvercrest's best possessions. Many times, Multioke players simply stole Silvercrest's inbound passes before converting their uncontested layups. Coach Fallot's face showed nothing but the depth of his boredom. His players looked like they were digging ditches for minimum wage, and the Multioke players looked only marginally more engaged. Coach Verk, however, looked like he was coaching a real basketball game. He kept clapping his hands and calling out standard coachisms such as push it and control the pace and let's get a stop. It was a bizarre performance, or else it was sincere, in which case it was even more bizarre. In this environment, Tanner struggled to figure out how to ruin Coach Verk's plan. If none of the Silvercrest players were interested in taking a shot, how could he allow one of them to score, thereby besmirching the crucial nothing component of Coach Verk's precious 200 to nothing pronouncement? It seemed clear that Coach Fallot had instructed his boys to lie down, to avoid the greater indignity of struggling pitifully against the inevitable. As Tanner ran fast break after fast break with his teammates, he tried to observe the demeanors of individual opponents. Was there a spark of defiance in even one eye? a hint of resentment and the clenchedness of even one jaw? The answer, he soon realized, was yes. The problem was that the spark of defiance and hint of resentment were most visible, only visible, in the eye and the jawline of number 64, the most evidently incompetent player of basketball Tanner had ever seen in uniform. Coach Fallot's halftime speeches were never inspiring, but this was his least inspiring halftime speech Julian had yet witnessed. Keep doing what you're doing, said Coach Fallot. Verk's eating it up, embarrassing himself, and he doesn't even know it, which is perfect. We're almost done. One half to go, then we can get back to basketball, or whatever our version of basketball is. Coach Verk's halftime speech was mostly dry chuckling. 134 to nothing, he said. We're at the threshold, boys. 66 points to go, and then we just run out the clock, 
hit the showers, and leave Coach Fallot to take a serious look at the decisions he made that brought him to this low, low moment in this low, low place. In the third quarter, only two interesting things happened. The one that everyone who hadn't yet left the gym noticed was that Multioke hit the 200-point mark and immediately quit trying to score. Playing keep-away with the ball as the clock ran down, an exercise made simpler by the fact that the Silvercrest players did not try to gain possession of the ball. The other interesting thing that happened, the one that no one noticed, was that Tanner exchanged a few whispered words with Julian while holding the ball above his head, well out of the chubby Silvercrest players' reach. Do you want to make a basket? asked Tanner. Yes, said Julian. Can you make a basket? asked Tanner. Yes, said Julian. Really? Yes. Have you ever made one before? I will this time, said Julian. Give me a chance. Wait until the closing minute, said Tanner. We'll have one shot. I'll be ready, said Julian. At least tie your shoes, said Tanner. They don't stay tied, said Julian. The buzzer sounded, bringing the third quarter to a close. All that remained was another eight minutes of skilled players tossing the ball around the three-point line while unskilled players stood nearby and watched, feeling the tick of every departing second in their as-yet-unfixed teenaged bones. Having won the opening tip, of course, Multioke received possession of the ball at the start of the fourth quarter. Tanner inbounded the ball to Chris, then sauntered up the court, veering toward his co-conspirator without appearing to do so on purpose, he hoped. Once he was close to number 64, Tanner walked back out beyond the three-point line, standing near the Multioke marionette logo painted on the floor. Number 64 followed, keeping a respectful distance. The kid might not have been an athlete, but he seemed to understand the importance of subtlety. Out of the corner of his mouth, Tanner said, When we hit the minute mark, I'll clap for the ball. I'll hold it for a few seconds, then I'll hand it to you. That's when you have to go. I'll run interference for you so none of my teammates catch up with you from behind. I'll block for you. I'll take them down if I have to. Got it, said Julian. You can do it, asked Tanner. You're sure? You won't dribble it off of your foot? I won't, said Julian. I'll dribble. I'll shoot a layup. The layup will go in, and I'll win. You'll what? asked Tanner. Win, said Julian. And when the time came, Julian did not dribble off of his foot. And Tanner did block his pursuing teammates. And Julian did shoot a layup. And after that moment, reality split in two. Technology, as is often the case in moments such as this, failed. The footage of the game was corrupted and rendered unwatchable. A black screen, not unvoid-like. So the eyewitness testimony of those in the gym that night became the only means by which one might ascertain whether or not Julian made his layup, and, therefore, whether Multioke High School beat Silvercrest Christian High School 200 to nothing or 200 to 2. And that eyewitness testimony was directly contradictory. Half of the people in the gym saw the shot go in. Was Julian's layup form unconventional, even ugly? Absolutely. But did the shot go in? Absolutely, off the middle of the square and through the net without touching the rim. Half of the people in the gym saw the shot miss. And what else would you expect to result from a layup form not just unconventional, but downright ugly? Nothing. The shot did not go in. Off the middle of the square with far too much force, bouncing forward and caroming off the front of the rim. Even that description makes it sound like a near miss in a way, but it was not a near miss. It was a bad miss. Julian saw the shot go in, and he pumped his fists beneath the basket by himself, the solo winner in solo celebration. Tanner saw the shot miss and clutched his head in his hands. Why hadn't he just taken the ball and scored in the wrong basket? Why hadn't he thought of that? 
Coach Virk saw the shot go in, and his decades-long desire for revenge, seconds from being quenched, came roaring back, burning hotter than ever before as it gulped down this fresh new fuel of betrayal. Coach Fallot, his heart in his throat, heaved a great sigh of relief when Julian's shot missed. Strange things can happen, yes, but tonight, a strange thing had not happened, and he would not have to worry about Coach Virk dragging him down into this miserable muck anymore. One referee declared the basket good. One said that it was no good. Arguments broke out everywhere, on the team benches, in the stands, at the scorer's table. The arguments continued in the halls of the school, in the parking lot, in the locker rooms, in cars, on the streets of Multioke, on the Silvercrest team bus. But these were not stimulating arguments. What evidence could one present to bolster one's case? But I saw it. I saw it. Corroborating witnesses were gathered, but for every witness gathered by one side, there was always a matching witness for the other side. What did you see, make or miss? Miss. See? See? What did you see? Make. Yes, see? And who knows how the lives of the people who saw Julian's layup diverged after that night. How might living in a world where one saw Multioke beat Silvercrest 200 to nothing differ from living in a world where one saw Multioke beat Silvercrest 200 to 2? What repercussions might those conflicting outcomes have on the rest of one's days? Imagine this. A father takes his young daughter to her first high school basketball game, wherein she sees Multioke beat Silvercrest 200 to nothing. Yet the father sees Multioke beat Silvercrest 200 to 2. How does that affect their relationship? Where do they go from there? There is a gulf between them. They are in parallel dimensions. They feel as if they can communicate with each other, that they can spend time together that they can touch each other, but is it an illusion? What can they share if one saw a make and the other saw a miss, and only by choosing to willfully deny their perceptions can they be brought together? We could return to our protagonists, Tanner and Julian, but in the aftermath of the layup, where do we land? How do we pick a side? They no longer belong to the same story. Their trajectories point in different directions. So we will stop here in the middle of the knot, where the disagreement is still fresh and we do not yet have to reckon with implications or consequences. Tanner and those who saw the miss will either inhabit the same space as Julian and those who saw the make, ignoring the tension, or perhaps even bound together by it, or the two sides will fade from each other's view, drifting apart until their rafts land on opposite shores. Or, most likely of all, memory will make such a muddle of the whole event that most people involved will throw up their hands, stop worrying about it, and move on. Alright, there's a a letter this week, an email from a listener named Jennifer. She says, this is only part of the email, by the way. It was longer and it was very nice, but I pulled out the parts uh, that I wanted to answer here at the end of the episode. She she says, uh, here's a question that, if you wished, you might address at the end of a bedtime story, if you think others might be interested. You've mentioned migraines in a number of your stories, and I have wondered whether you suffer with them yourself. Part of me thinks you may have actually addressed this at some point, as I realize now that I feel fairly confident that you do. This because you shared a true-life anecdote that confirmed this, or because you write like a guy who's writing from the inside of a migraine mind? I cannot say. Apologies if it's the former. I turned 47 a few days ago, and already I'm feeling the accelerating cognitive decline. I'd parrot my mom at this point by throwing out, don't get old, but I understand if my mom does not, this is the equivalent 
uh, that this is equivalent to saying die young, which is not at all a sentiment I endorse. Uh, okay, uh, so in response to that, I always thought migraines were specifically extremely painful headaches, uh, but my wife actually just told me that they don't have to be severe, and I just looked up the term, and the official definition confirms that they can be moderate. So yes, I guess I get migraines, although I'm blessed with the fact that I can usually fend them off with water and ibuprofen uh, or some sleep, and they're usually not debilitating. Sometimes I'll get them three or four days in a row. Sometimes I'll go weeks without having a headache at all. Uh, I don't know if I've shared that true life anecdote before, and I don't even remember mentioning migraines in stories, but if you figured out that I get recurring moderate headaches just by analysis of or uh, instinctive reaction to my writing style, then I congratulate you. All right, so the letter goes on. There's another question that I won't articulate because I understand how it can be among the most annoying, stress-inducing, infuriating questions one can receive. Instead, I will simply say that I look forward to enjoying your future works. So here, this is a question slash comment about my novel, is how I interpret it. And here's what's going on with my novel. I started writing with the intention of writing one book. Then it got very long and the story kept expanding, so I thought, well, this is book one of two. And then it got to be 220,000 words long, and the story still wasn't concluded, and I decided, well, this is books one and two of three. So that's where I'm at. I'm working on putting together query letters in an attempt to interest agents at the moment. So if any of you know an agent, or have any kind of connection to an agent, or if any of you are agents, then let me know. AdamDren at gmail.com. She goes on. Another couple questions, if I may. If you feel that your writing falls into any of the literary genres one hears about, would you consider magical realism to be one such? I'm thinking, for example, of stain removal. Uh, Yeah, when I think of magical realism, I usually think of more stylish poetic prose than I write, but sure, I think most of my stories are in the neighborhood of magical realism. Uh, She also asks, have you read The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, and if so, what did you think, if you remember? Uh, I have read The Master and Margarita by Bulgakov, and I loved it. It was was assigned to me in a contemporary European novel class in grad school, and Russia isn't Europe, but the professor was professor was Russian, so he probably knew that and just really wanted to read Bulgakov. And I don't blame him, because the book is great. I've also read The Heart of a Dog by Bulgakov, and it disturbed me. Um, She goes on to write, Here now I will tell you a couple of things. One, Dave, our dog, and I drove across to Chicago from the East Coast for Christmas at my brother's, which sent us through northern Indiana. I thought of you in Multioke often as we did, seeing the kind of landscapes I picture when I hear your stories, but haven't seen since we last made the drive nearly 10 years ago. Yes, northern Indiana is where I grew up, and that is the exact region that I'm thinking about whenever I write a Multioke story, so you were correct to see those landscapes and transpose them onto your image of Multioke and the surrounding area. And then she goes on to say, two... One of the bedtime stories we listened to on the trip last week, a Christmas one, was the owner's favor. Now, I've got to tell you something about me here, dude, which is that I cannot bear to hear about, see, or imagine animals getting hurt. I know, I know, I cannot help it. Yes, I'm vegan. Yes, I cry at the TV commercials showing dogs shivering in shelters. I have been unable to toughen up and have resigned myself to avoiding the imagery at all cost. This means there are certain bedtime stories I've learned that I can't listen to at all. Elephant Ears, That Poor Yellow Lab, and Alternate Choreography, The Poor Deer, for example. There are some with images that are tough, puppy lowered into exchange hole, exhausted horses forced to ride in word of something monstrous, or was it Cherry Day? And there's one in which horses die, one with a wet scream if I'm not mistaken. Which one escapes me at the moment? A King story, I think. 
that I still run across from time to time, but I realized I avoided the owner's favor because of the bear trap and the poor dad caught in it, animal-like, as Paige traverses the owner's land, interacting with, presumably imaginary, characters instead of getting help. But I really like that one, dude. It's grown to me, grown on me. I think the magical-seeming elements, if they count as such, temper the suffering part, make it less real. I particularly like the odd way the imaginary characters speak, so I just wanted to say that. I offer you a high-five if you'll accept one. Uh, yeah, there may be a few stories where exhausted horses are forced to ride, but Cherry Day is the one where the horses get stabbed and die graphically. But yeah, I understand the aversion to animal peril. It's something I think I've gotten away from recently, although I may just not remember. It does irritate me how often I see a movie that prominently features a dog in early scenes, and you just know that dog is doomed. It's only there to raise the stakes by dying at some point. My novels slash novels, however you want to think of them, feature a lot of talk of goat sacrifice, but it isn't depicted. And there's a pet dog named Barker, and I'll just say that I have no intention of letting any farm be- uh, letting any harm befall her. I'm not going to make any promises about the fate of animals in future stories, but it, but I would at least like people to know that I don't get any sadistic pleasure out of rendering their suffering. I love animals. And I'm also glad that you like the owner's favor. It's actually one of the bedtime stories that I'm most proud of. So thanks for mentioning it. I gratefully accept your high five. Anyway, she goes on to say, Wow, I rambled. I apologize, man. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, all best wishes to you and your family for a happy and healthy 2020, brah. Jennifer. Thank you very much for writing in, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. I hope those answered your questions. If anyone else would like to write in uh, and listen to me read your email and respond to it, you can do so at adamdrent at gmail.com. Hi, this is Adam Drent. Thank you for listening to this bedtime story. I'll be back in about a month with another one. There are a ton more you can listen to on iTunes, or you can listen to them, read them, and even answer discussion questions about them on hugepop.com. There you can also find a link to the music I make as the mispronouncer. I also have two podcasts that are not necessarily defunct, but which are certainly on extended hiatus. They're called Out of All Doors and One Man's World, and both of those are on iTunes as well. If you'd like to donate to my Patreon, which will allow you access to a variety of bonuses, you can do so at patreon.com slash hugepop. 